chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. And this is what we read. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Well, this is the word of God. Pray he adds his blessing to it. So I have a friend in uh, ministry, a ministry colleague. Some of you may know uh, Chris. If you're familiar with the CARE portal, um, he started a ministry a handful of years ago now that really comes alongside parents who want to foster children and getting resources from people who have stuff laying around in their homes and then giving it to those who have extra needs who are in the foster care arena. And they do more than just that as well. But this ministry has really thrived under his leadership. And we see each other every now and then in some circles uh, and haven't seen him for the last few months. But I, I don't do a lot of social media stuff, but I'll, I'll check Facebook every now and then. And I saw a comment that he made uh, about some, some incident that occurred. And so I clicked on it and read a little bit more. And apparently, just a couple of weeks ago, he was eating at a restaurant. He happened to be in Columbus, and he had a seizure. And he ended up in the hospital, and they've diagnosed him with a brain tumor. And it's very complicated, uh, and I don't know all the details, but he has a, one of those care bridges pages now, and you can read updates. And there was a whole plan up there in Columbus, but it got scrapped last second a couple of days ago, and now he's relocating to Cincinnati. Um, so Christmas does not look for him like he probably planned it, as we said last week. But what struck me as he was processing some of this, um, he's probably about my age as well, as he had, had written on his, uh, on his post, just as light always overcomes darkness, hope always overcomes hopelessness. Just as light always overcomes darkness, hope always overcomes hopelessness. And that was striking for a number of reasons. One is that's exactly what we talked about last week when we looked at John chapter 1, that hope shines eternal. Actually, shines is the present continuous verb. The only one, as we said in the first eight verses, that's ongoing and that comes in the midst of darkness and perhaps shines more brightly in it. And this is the hope that somebody who is walking with Christ has. I'm, I know he's scared. There's a lot of uncertainty. Things aren't going according to what he would hope they do, but this is the Christian hope, right? Even in the midst of this great unknown that is to come, what he does know is there's a long road ahead. He can still say hope overcomes hopelessness. That might feel hopeless, but he says no, it's because he trusts in Christ. He actively believes Christ is who he says he is. That when you open up the Gospel of John and you read, in the beginning was the word, and we understand that word is Christ, and he made all things, and he is co-equal with God, the same in substance and glory, and yet he put on flesh and came in our midst so that we could overcome the darkness 
in our own hearts by virtue of who he is. That's something that Chris believes. And he's going to need to remind himself of that again and again. Now, I know for Christmas, part of what we'll be talking about even in our Mosaics Cincy Network that we gather together uh, on, this, on this Wednesday, we're talking about the hope of heaven, but the reality of struggle. How do those two things collide? And if there's any text that shows how they collide, it's right here in the Gospel of John, as heaven literally comes to earth in the midst of darkness and offers hope that is eternal, even when things seem the darkest. And there was a person in time and space who came to talk about that, and his name happened to be John. So the first couple of verses here, as we look at verses 6 through 8, we see there was a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. Now, this is not the John who's writing the Gospel of John. This is another John. Just welcome to my world. Hi, Mark. Yeah, I'm Mark. Usually, it seems to be men 40 years and older in the United States. There aren't a lot of younger ones, too, but oh my goodness, what a name. Mark, it's awesome. Mom and Dad, if you're paying attention this morning, thank you very much for that. Now, I do have a C at the end instead of a K. That's pretty awesome as well, too. But there's a lot of Marks around here. You know, we've got a couple swirling around right here, too. And there were a lot of Johns, apparently, back then, too. Interesting note, when I was a resident assistant in, at, back in college, I had a student whose name was John, John, John. First name, middle name, last name. John, John, John. It's like, John, John, John. How, why? And he said, I'll tell you the story if you buy me a pizza. Well, if you know anything about college students, I never heard the story. <laughs> it never happened. So this John... Uh, just one name, as far as I can tell, as well, came, sent from God. And actually, he was, if you, if you know the Bible as a whole, there was a stories back in Isaiah of somebody who would come and prepare a way for the Messiah, who would declare that the Messiah, the one who's promised to come into the world, he's at hand, and this is John the, John the Baptist. He began to baptize people, and some of his followers said, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he is the light. He's the one who, who was spoken of. And, and John, the gospel of John, the writer, says, no, John the Baptist is not himself the light. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him, that is the light, all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So John, the gospel, says John the Baptist himself was just a witness to the light, but he was not the light himself, and neither are we. So John had a, a very significant role. We talk about redemptive history. Maybe that's a new term to you, but God from Genesis to Revelation is weaving a story of saving a people and calling them to himself, and he's going to secure the price for that to happen by sending Christ, his son. And things happen in, in the Old Testament that, that anticipate the arrival. And, and now as John the Baptist comes too, he's the forerunner. And he, so he's unique in that respect. Nobody else here is John the Baptist. And yet he's like each one of us also in that we are actually not the light. He wasn't. People wanted to tell him, hey, are you the Messiah? You're the one we're going to follow. He said, no, you've got it wrong. I'm not the light. I'm just a mere mortal like you. He was a witness pointing to the light. 
redemptively unique, yet quite informative. There's only one true light. Some of us need to remember we cannot overestimate who we are necessarily, right? And these people wanted to say, you're the Messiah. Some of us actually have what has been come to be labeled as a Messiah complex. You know what that means? You think you have to save people in your life or maybe even yourself. It was striking to me last week when I referenced one of our ESL Bible conversations and the person said, I don't need a gate. I am the gate. You are your own Messiah. That is a heavy weight to bear. You're not designed to do that. But it's easy to begin to think that we are. Anytime you slip into what people call a works mentality, that if I get good enough, then I'm right with God, you're effectively engaged in some sort of Messiah complex. You can't do it. You are not the eternal coexistent son of God. There's only one. So don't overestimate. It takes a little bit of burden off. And, and one of the ways I think you start slipping into that is look at areas in your life where you feel like you have to control things. There's so little that we can control. God, if he created everything as we believe with just a word, let's leave the controlling things to him. There are some things that we cannot control. One of them is changing other people. You can create an environment for change, but you can't actually change anybody. You're not the Messiah. So take a deep breath and maybe even a chill pill a little bit and relax in that reality. Don't overestimate, but also don't underestimate because he is a witness and he is pointing to the true light. So he does have a role and so do you. You have, we've seen that even in the book of Corinthians, that there's all this conversation about light, but we have that light that has come into us as well, and now we shine it to others. We are literally called to be martyreos, martyrs. And that sounds like a bad thing. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you're going to be witnesses, martyrs, to the ends of the earth. And that's simply, in some, sometimes a martyr can be somebody who lays his life down literally. But the broader sense is you're just, your life is a letter, an open letter, testifying that this light is true. And so you're just reflecting that light. And this, this is language that's picked up on as well, even by, by Paul. Uh, as, you, as you can see here in Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. It's pretty interesting language, very similar to what that we have already read in, in John. In fact, remarkable similarity. He calls you children of God. As a child of God, then, you reflect that light in a crooked and depraved generation. Now, he's not writing here to the 21st century American church only. He's writing, he's writing thousands of years ago. Crooked and depraved generations, not a new thing, people. This has been going on for a long time. And they had the chance in their moment to say, how do we look different? How do we shine the light of Christ who is the truth and in whom there is no darkness at all? What does that look like? And here's a very practical way to do it if you're into the kind of per, you're the kind of person who says, okay, I want to take this seriously. What can I work on? Do everything without complaining 
are arguing. You want to shine like a star? Don't complain. Don't argue. Kids, you want to give your parents the best Christmas gift ever. <laughs> Don't complain or argue about anything. Can you imagine? That would be pro probably a pretty good gift. Maybe better than a new pair of Uggs or something. But forget about the kids. What about the parents? What opportunities do we have when we would be loose-lipped about what we don't have and instead to use as an opportunity for gratitude and thankfulness? This is apparently what it looks like to shine like a star and to be reflective of the true light. Now the reality is you're going to fail, but that's where we go back to the light who shines into our darkness and forgives us. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins. If you pretend you don't have any sin, then the truth isn't in you. So let's be honest about that. But then let's not stay there. Let's move forward in that reality. So on the one hand, I see in this text, I think we see, let's not overestimate ourselves. We can't control everything, but then let's not underestimate both our value and our capacity to reflect the light that Christ himself is. I'll give you an example of how this works out, and some of you may have heard this too, and perhaps you've seen something similar, but when I got married, uh, my best friend gave a toast. It was uh, an amazing toast. These days, I've, you know, as I do weddings and toasts, apparently you can chat GPT, GI, whatever, GI. Um, all that stuff that you have, the best toast, you can download that kind of stuff. We had to make it all up on our own back then, but he... He, he, he was talking uh, about during the toast, you know, an American wedding, you get up and the, the best man and a bunch of other people uh, say, say things. And so he's talking about me and he was talking about uh, this man that, that he knew who was kind and gentle and insightful and, and wise and, and a, the, the best friend anybody could ever ask for and patient and forgiving. And I'm like, wow. I'm awesome. And, he, and, and of course, if you know, he just said, this man is Jesus Christ. <laughs> and he said, now, it's because Mark knows Jesus that some of those things are true of him as well. As well. So I'm still trying to process how I'm supposed to feel about that entire thing. But it was a good picture of this. I, I, any of that's only reflective of who Christ has made me, even if I didn't even intend that. I mean, there's this kind of general light that we've all been given. Uh, you could call it common grace. Any good thing that you have as a reflection or others noticing you of a gift from God that you've received, even if you don't recognize it or acknowledge it. So Paul, or Paul, John says here that this John the Baptist is a witness, but he was not the light himself, and neither are we. And then he goes on in verses 10 through 11 to say he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus understands rejection. This, this, is, this is a remarkable statement, isn't it? That, that Christ was in the world that, that in and of itself, we spent some time trying to understand last week. He was in the world. The eternal God wrapped himself in flesh, became a man, and entered into this world that was riddled with darkness. The one who was true light came to the place 
where darkness was reigning. The Eternal wrapped himself in time and space. He became a baby. I mean, how dependent is that? Utterly. And this is why we celebrate that reality at Christmas. Listen to Philippians again. We already looked at chapter 2, verse 14. But just before that comes this remarkable string, starting in verse 5, saying your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And here's, the, here's a demonstration of what that attitude was. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, he didn't become less, he put on more as a servant, as a human. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We celebrate the birth of Christ. We do that recognizing God entered into space and time for the purpose of dying on our behalf. I mean, that's amazing sacrifice and humility and love. And the creation itself owes its very existence to him. Everything that has, we saw last week, in him you live and move and have your being, even if you don't recognize it. Everything that exists would not exist if it weren't for Christ. He's the glue that holds the entire universe together. He, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the beginning, and he's the end. And, and how would you expect that a world would receive the one from whom its very existence relies upon? You would expect gratitude, at least a little bit, wouldn't Gee, thanks for giving me life for everything. Or some, some measure of appreciation Joy, perhaps. And what does he receive? Apathy, indifference, even hostility. The world that was made through him, he gave everything, doesn't recognize him. There's some ignorance or, or, or indifference. And in fact, when he comes to them, came to that which was his own, and, and the Greek there suggests like to his hometown, as it were, his own didn't receive him. He's the one who gave birth, as it were, to these people. And they're just rejecting him. And they are us. <laughs> so, so you understand, don't you, what it's like when perhaps some of you have poured into somebody or something over and over and all you get back from that is like, forget you, I can't stand you. In fact, you're the problem. Well, this is what Jesus experienced only on a cosmic level. I have another friend this week who I was talking, we were talking about our Thanksgivings. How was your Thanksgiving? And we were kind of giving a report on that too. And um, we, had, we had a great, great Thanksgiving. One of, the, one of the best Thanksgivings we've had in a very, very long time. We've had a lot of hard Thanksgivings and this one was, was great. How was yours? So that, that's a true story, by the way. We did. And, and I said, how was yours? He said, well, he has four, four children uh, that he has uh, adopted. He began with foster care and then received them as their own, uh, adopted them as children. And now they're mostly grown up, but there's some contention there. And one of his daughters uh, tried to make sure that nobody showed up for Thanksgiving at the home of this person who has given everything to them. And that's, he said, so it was very lonely. Nobody came. There wasn't anybody here. 
And uh, we had a very quiet Thanksgiving. And, and it was just a small picture of the pain of rejection when you've invested everything and what you get in return is hostility or indifference. And what I want to tell you is if you can re- relate to that, you have a Savior who understands that. You, this is the beauty of Christianity. You have a God who gets it wherever you happen to be. Jesus understands rejection. He came to his own, the very reason they exist. And what he gets is nailed to a cross. You aren't who you say you are. He understands. One of the reasons that happens, as John goes on to say in chapter 3, and you've heard 3.16, but this goes on from there. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So according to John, one of the reasons that we reject the light and the truth is we're afraid of what happens if we actually come into the light. And that's understandable. A lot of us do that. But this is the good news that John 3.16 has in view. He didn't come to judge, but rather to forgive, right? But you can't be forgiven unless you come into the light. And there's a reason maybe the fear that if you're exposed for who you really are, you'll be rejected. That's totally understandable. But this is the gospel. You won't be. It's not until you're honest that you, know, you can know you're truly loved. Until you're direct and straightforward about who you are that you can hear, I forgive you. Until then, you're going to be just doing this endless process of either trying to have your own Messiah complex saving yourself or dodging and hiding so that nobody knows who you truly are. And that's not who you were created to be. This is the good news of the gospel. If you are honest, God will forgive you. And the proof positive of that is in what we'll celebrate later, the table. His body was given for you. His blood was shed for you. But until you embrace that, you're on your own. You're not designed to be that way. You're designed to be in fellowship with God who entered into our space and time and shines his light into darkness, even in your own heart. Stop loving darkness. Start walking in the light. There's no price you can put on a clear conscience. You just can't do it. Maybe that's the Christmas gift for you. Jesus understands rejection. And he died on behalf of those who even rejected him. When he said on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's the response that he has when you come honestly before him. So there is a different pathway, and, and John gets to it as well here in the next few couple of verses that we end on. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. So here's, here's the different storyline. There's hiding in darkness or actually receiving the one who is the light. And John says to those who receive and believe, you can become the children of God. Receive and believe. What's your response? You can hide from this light or receive the light and believe that light. Now this word believe in the Greek and the, the kind of I believe form is pistuo. 
And all throughout the gospel, John uses this. He uses it 98 times through John 1 to 21. It's just there again and again. He's all about believing. There's a lot of motifs and themes in John. We looked at some of those last week. Certainly light is one of them. And Jesus saying, I am. Right? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. But also believe. The call, the response, the appropriate response to this truth is to believe. And that word believe is a very active verb. It's not passive. It's always used actively. In other words, there's action attached to it. To believe is not just some intellectual assent out there like, yeah, I believe he's the son of God mentally because the proof that you actually believe it is the actions and how you live your life. That's what it means to believe. John labors very hard to say this is an active reality. I remember hearing years ago when I first became a follower of Christ at 16, 17 years old. Can't remember exactly which. It was sometime, long time back then too. This, this is an illustration I heard and I've heard it used many times since and I think it's a fitting one. Maybe it helps you understand too. And here it is. You've perhaps heard this illustration before. Uh, pretend that you're at the Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but there's a tightrope going from one side to the other. And there's a wheelbarrow. And somebody says, do you believe I can go across the Niagara Falls pushing this wheelbarrow from one side to the next? Do you believe that? There's a crowd gathered around, of course. And it was heck yeah. Because we all love to see a train wreck, Right? I mean, it'd be an amazing thing if he gets there, but if not, we were there to witness it. Now with phones and that kind of stuff too. And you're like, oh, I don't want to see, but I want to see and everything going on. So he says, okay. So he, he, he goes across and, and pushes the wheelbarrow to one side. It shows, shows his you know, passport to get into Canada or whatever. And then, and then comes back to the other side. And they're like, yay! He says, now who believes I can do it? And everybody raises his hand. And he says, now get into the wheelbarrow. <clears throat> Who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? You've seen I can do it, you believe? And not a single person will get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> so the, 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 the illustration there is it's to believe maybe, oh, God, so that's the first one. The faith God's calling you is get in the wheelbarrow. To, to, to get in there and trust that Christ, in whom you believe, is going to take you across to the other side and back again. Or that even if you fall, you're doing it with Jesus. <laughs> he had a... This is the picture of active faith that John wants everybody to adopt. And you can know these things intellectually, but he says that's not real faith. Real faith is trusting. It's walking in that way. You walk by faith, not by sight. It affects absolutely everything you do. Are you in the wheelbarrow? With Christ, the one who's got the reins. He's holding the handles there, too. It's an act of trust. And that's difficult. You know, even his own disciples who saw him at the very end of the gospel, and Jesus, we see he's born, and then he does his ministry, and then he dies. And it seems like the story's finished, but it's not because he, he, he's raised from the dead and his disciples see him. But one didn't. His name was Thomas. And, and Jesus shows up uh, a little bit later, a week after the others have seen him. 
And, and he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out. Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And there are probably plenty of us who would say, I want to believe like that. I want to get in the wheelbarrow. But I need to see the hands and the side. They need a little bit more proof. And Thomas got it. Isn't he lucky? And Jesus understands our predicament as well because he goes on to say, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You're blessed today. You haven't seen maybe? Believed. There's a lot of rational reasons to believe in this. We've talked about that before. But there's a point at which that faith is just trusting that Christ is the Son of God and stop doubting and believe. And you're blessed if that's the case. Now, for those who receive and believe, you become a child of God, and it's a sheer miracle. <laughs> Anytime a person says, yes, I believe, it is miraculous. And that this is, what, this is what John is saying. Children born not of natural descent. You know how kids are born, right? They come into the world because of a mother and that whole thing. That's the natural reason. He said these children aren't born that way. It's a different kind of birth. How do you explain that? It's miraculous. Not of a human decision or husband's will, but born of God. God himself regenerates or births our... our and this we saw in John, John chapter 3. When Nicodemus was saying, I want in on that. How do, you're talking about being born again. How, how does that happen? I don't understand. You need to be born of, of God. It's a spiritual rebirth. It's, it's him regenerating our hearts. And in the, the, in the Greek, when you become a child of God, it's, it's technon. It's, it's different than huios. You know, huios, for those of you who are Greek scholars, know that's a son. But this is technon. This is a child. You've been given that, that status as a child of God. And that means you've been regenerated. It's just something that has been given and conferred to you. So that now you are no longer outside of God's family. And that's a sheer miracle. It's not based on your physical ancestry. It's, I mean, Paul, John, I keep saying Paul because we go from Corinthians to John. And so I don't know if by the time we get back to Corinthians written by Paul, I'm going to start talking about John. But give me a little bit of grace there too. John here is saying your physical ancestry is irrelevant. You're not born a Christian. You're born of God when he regenerates or makes your heart new. And for those reading it this day, this physical ancestry thing was a big deal. You know, a lot of us who read the Bible now, if we're especially from the West, let's face it, genealogies can be kind of boring. It's a little difficult. Like, if you read through the Bible in a year, if anybody does that, you're... You get the book of Numbers, you're just kind of flipping through genealogies. They're there for a reason, though, to prove they're actually real people. And because who your parents were then, and for some cultures more than others, actually makes a big difference. So if you know the whole idea of this, this idea that from your seed will come a Messiah back in Genesis 3.15, they're already looking forward to the time when Christ comes. And so you can train that, you can, you can trace that physical ancestry. And in fact, when Matthew talks about the birth of Christ, and in Luke, there's 
genealogies there. And what's interesting about the book of Matthew is that four of the women who are mentioned, mentioned there were non-Israelites. Canaanites, a couple of them, two, from the, from the place that they, he said that they're wicked people. See, they were, even Jesus had mixed blood, as it were, in him, if you go back far enough. And part of that, at least, in, in, at least part of it here is because he wants to show them that you're not born of natural descent in the kingdom of God. You're born of God himself. And so, as was said earlier, is Christianity just for white Americans? No. And if anybody treats, treats it that way, they've missed the entire thing. This is, this is for those who are born of God. It's irrespective of who your parents happen to be. And Paul, and I do mean Paul this time, talks about that in Galatians 3. You know, in Christ, you know, Jew or Gentile or, or male or female or any of these categories, if you're in Christ, you're treated like a son, a son of Abraham. All those rights and privileges given to that genealogical line are yours. But that's because of your faith in Christ and what he has given you. And that's a sheer miracle. So in this text, we see some rejection, but then we also see acceptance. To those who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And as Leon Morris notes, the end of the story is not the tragedy of rejection, but the grace of acceptance. That's where John's headed here, at least in this text. To those who received him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the grace of acceptance. And that's the offer of what we call the gospel, the good news of Christ that's available to everyone, no matter where you come from, no matter what your age might be. That light can break into darkness. And if you think that you're unworthy, then you're in the right place. If they think your darkness is too dark, it's impossible. It isn't. Light always overcomes darkness. If you feel like you're completely hopeless, it's not true. Hope always overcomes hopelessness. And the proof of it is Christ entering the world. The light of life coming into darkness and overcoming it. That's the hope of the gospel. Father, I pray for our hearts this morning as we sit.